0: Hi there, Duncan Green here with the regular roundup of posts on the From Poverty to Power blog. Hard to know where to start really. I mean, um, it's hard to talk about anything other than Ukraine, the the horrors that are going on there. I'm feeling incredibly frustrated with the lack of deep thinking and reflection about it, trying to understand the causes, the origins, the consequences, You know how it could end, where Europe's going to go. So if you have anything you've read, that's particularly interesting and insightful, especially if it's written by non-Western authors, I'd love to see it. I'm kind of gathering things together and I'll try and write a post on things to read for next week. But in the meantime, I suppose I better bring us up to date. Uh, in the Since I last did the podcast, I've had COVID and recovered. I've been on holiday, which was great. And now it, I've been back and it seems to be raining ever since uh, I landed at Gatwick. Um, totally grim spring so far but never mind but therefore links I liked is important and I'll start there um, the one thing I did uh, put in which lifted my spreads, was an extraordinary display by the Indian Air Force a black and white photo from the 1970s where they dressed the helicopters up for a parade as elephants which I think is amazing and I don't know why people don't do it more dressing aircraft up as animals uh, it could be a great a big new thing this was for sort of ceremonial flyover type events. Um, just wild, loved it. Um, next post was uh, one of my sort of periodic reflections. And it comes because I think my thinking gets stuck sometimes uh, without even realizing it. And then a chance conversation kind of shifts things a bit. And this was a conversation with the LSE does all these executive master's courses. And this was one on cities where there were lots of really interesting people Deeply involved in city administrations, and I was, um, comment- I was doing some work on how change happens with them and, and influencing <laughs> strategies and so on. So they were presenting their personal projects on on different aspects of urban transformation, access to water, reviving pollinators and bees in urban spaces in Colombia, um, shifting from new build to the densification of existing downtown buildings in various cities, um, and. I- you know, we then had a really interesting conversation. Something slightly clicked, um, and it was around this whole issue of why change doesn't happen. So for a while now, I've been trotting out this mantra that you know to understand why change doesn't happen, you need to think about ideas, interests, and institutions. So interests. If you're a lefty, you often assume that the reason something's not happening is because somebody's getting rich from it, and therefore blocks change. Um, if you're Uh, if you you want to think about institutions, sometimes they just don't have the procedures that can cope with what you're suggesting. And we see that in the aid business where, you know, aid agencies work to a maximum three-year time horizon. Politicians work to the next election in democratic systems. It's very hard to talk to them about 20 or 50-year projects, which is what, you know, for example, climate activists want to talk about. And ideas are a third. So, it's it's a visible obstacle to change, but there's this thing called the Overton window, which says, you know, these ideas are what's considered legitimate topics of debate and they change over time. So, you know, 10 years ago, trans rights would not have been a legitimate topic for debate. 20 years ago, equal marriage would would have been outside the Overton window. So that changes all the time as well. And it means, you know, a a much closer to home example would be you know that that some ideas are just about prejudice. Poor people can't handle money, um, so therefore we need to keep giving them food or things they don't want, um, or you know norms around activism. Let's be active. Let's do something, even when we're not really sure if it's going to achieve anything. So, interest ideas and institutions are all useful, but that's where I usually stop. And and the the conversation got me thinking about okay, so what's the theory of change around unblocking those three? Yeah, you know, what do you do differently? depending on which of those three you think are more important. Um, so just some initial thoughts on this, a sort of from blocker analysis rather than par analysis to, uh, to, a, to a theory of change. On interest, I think shifting interest could mean changing incentives, you know, for example, getting governments or other powerful players to punish some bad things or encourage some good ones. And CGD uh, Centre for Global Development did that very nicely with the uh, UN's foot dragging on cash transfers. They, they wanted to persuade the UN to take cash transfers seriously, given that there was so much evidence that cash transfers made sense. And um, the, the way they did it in the end was to persuade DFID to fund a big cash transfer project. And suddenly the UN said, Oh, cash transfers, maybe they're a good idea. Um, so money, money talks louder than um, uh, policy papers. Um, it could mean calling out bad people or bad actions, to increase the reputational damage associated with them. So you shift incentives by saying, if you keep doing that, you will lose customers or you will lose credibility or whatever. Or maybe finding a new messenger for your campaign, who your block of fears or respects. So different ways of coping with interests. Institutions might be more insider stuff, adaptive management, really interesting um, uh, program I've written about in the past called Coalitions for Change in the Philippines, which looks at little tweaks which are politically feasible and uh, uh, and smart and and can get results and they've achieved some fantastic stuff. Harvard's whole work around what's called, what they call the problem-driven iterative adaptation approach (PDIA) also is based on sort of tweaking within the system. Build a you build a reform coalition on the inside, try and get some authorization from some big guns, some big cheeses, and then try and get some quick wins to get momentum. So that can that can work. Um, Ideas are more tricky. You know, ideas shift longer term. It may be about taking control of university departments and getting you know, new ideas into young and malleable minds, which I suppose is kind of what I'm trying to do at the LSE, although I don't tell them that. Um, <clears throat> but there's also lots of work on how you build narratives, lots of work on changing social norms. So you know, I think there's more and more thinking going on about how you shift entrenched ideas, because that seems to be one of the biggest problems we face. So, you know, that was just some obvious stuff. I, I, I left it to other people to comment. A few people did. If you're interested, do come and add your thoughts because I think it's something I want to develop in the future. And then I went on holiday, as I say, recovered from COVID before I went on holiday. I hasten to add. Um, and then uh, when, we, when I came back, the first post I put up was a guest post from Deborah Burson called, What has global military spending and emissions got to do with development? And the answer is rather a lot. So this is rather interesting. I mean, she, she her first subtitle was "Stumbling Upon a Rather Well Funded Gas Guzzling Elephant in the Room," which I liked, and uh, and she says she's a former trade and tax campaigner at Christian Aid, and she was fascinated by the progression of development sector campaigns from debt to trade and from trade to tax, and she thinks something similar, or sees something similar in the climate military relationship because conveniently hidden away inside the climate debate is an almost invisible matter of global military greenhouse gas gas emissions. And this is a new one. I hadn't thought about this. so I was really interested to read this post. So together with her colleague, Dr. Ho Chi Lin, uh, a tipping point north south, they'd been researching military spending through a development lens before too long had inevitably arrived at the military climate development angle. It soon became very clear to us, she says, ever-rising military spending was key to significant military emissions. Moreover, that military spending plus military emissions combined is a major unaddressed development concern. So the global, global military spending is currently $2 trillion per year, $2,000 billion a year, as much as at the height of the Cold War. Although the emissions data is far from comprehensive, it's obvious that military spending literally fuels military greenhouse gas emissions. The bulk of of military spending is by G20 nations and they account for 87% of that $2 trillion. Um, They're locked into fossil fuel dependent hardware like tanks, warships and fighter jets, guzzling enormous amounts of fossil fuels. For example, an F-35, the most advanced and most expensive fighter jet currently on on sale, drinks 6,000 liters of fuel per hour when it's when it's flying. The Pentagon is the single largest consumer of energy in the U.S. and the largest institutional consumer of fossil fuels in the world. In the U.K., the Ministry of Defence (the MOD) by its own admission, rather I should say. Uh, is the single largest contributor to greenhouse gas emissions within the central government, responsible for more than half the total emissions of government. For all this, militaries are exempt from compulsory reporting of their greenhouse gas emissions to UN processes and have no realistic or practical zero carbon plan. So this is a huge gap in the carbon reduction um, uh, discussion. Ultimately, these expensive fossil uh, fossil fuel-dependent weapon systems are intended for use, as the people of Yemen, Syria, Iraq and Afghanistan will testify. They will face the horrors of war, their homes destroyed, and will rely on emergency humanitarian appeals, while at the same time living on the front line of climate change. Conversely, the war profits accruing to defence contractors will guarantee very healthy shareholder dividends. And while humanitarian appeals may or may not reach their target, Weapons manufacturing is lucrative. So, yeah, their conclusion, I mean, her conclusion, Deborah Burton's conclusion is, if it is right to demand that rich nations pay up for the historic emissions burden, if it is right to address the damage of Western finance on development through the lens of indebtedness or tax havens, then surely the time has come to look at the impact on the global south of rich nations' foreign and defence policy, as manifested through insane, ever-rising levels of military spending. So I mean I wholeheartedly endorse that um, but there's a but I think. Think back to the Overton window you know at what point what do you have to do to shift military spending into a legitimate discussion rather than security is for big boys there's no way we're going to let you climate change people get your hands on that and that's the thing that worries me but um yeah, you know, it's a it's a first attempt and this is how things move into the um overton window through courageous kind of forward thinking pieces like the one by deborah so i hope it's part of a you know, a, a longer term shift and they said uh you know last year for example at the cop 26 in glasgow we uh we would she and others were trying to push for this issue to break out and they got open letters to the g7 g20 with leading signatories like green greenpeace Cafod, christian aid Michael Mann, Jason Hickel, Brian Eno, Brian Eno. Wow, that's serious. As well as UN Climate Ambassador Nigel Topping. So they were trying. They're starting to get it. The, the ball rolling, which is really exciting. <clears throat> okay, I'll leave it there. But I think it's a really important sort of, in the long term, yeah, historically essential uh, piece of work. As is the next post, actually, which also and both of the both of these posts were pegged. To a new uh, report from the Intergovernmental Panel on the Climate Change, on climate change, uh, which came out this week, and this one is about a climate plea, an IPCC special report on children question mark because there isn't one, and the trouble with yeah, it's really tragic in a way that the IPCC report, which is incredibly important, big new data on the damage caused, on the problems that, to be addressed, and it's been overshadowed completely in the press by events in Ukraine. So you know only climate specialists really are talking about it, which is a shame. This is a piece by uh, Thomas Tanner at SOAS in the uh, University of London, Faith Nimina uh, at uh, Child Fund Alliance, Brigitte Rudrum from Clan International, Yolandi Wright from Save the Children and Jason Garrett from World Vision. Um, and it's a fairly straightforward argument. I'll read it out actually. Whether you have one or not, impacts on children often invoke the strongest feelings In times of crisis be it the recent flood victims of Madagascar or the civilian casualties of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But another thing we know about children is that they can be powerful drivers of change from Malala Yousafzai to Kreta Thunberg. Given children's enormous stake in the climate crisis and their powerful voice surely the IPCC should be able to tell us more about the impacts on and potential actions for and by under 18s. No? Why not? The latest IPCC climate report was released this week, and its findings reveal that impacts are not even. Children are being impacted now and over their lifetimes, especially girls, those with disabilities, indigenous children, and those living in lower-income communities and countries. This is both worrying and evocative. But despite the report's encouraging synthesis—I'm not sure if "encouraging" is the right word uh, there—a powerful, perhaps, synthesis of efforts to adapt to climate change, it says little about the successes or potential of engaging children in these responses and then they've got some quotes from um, uh, uh, child activists and 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 others where a choice has to be made between which of two school-going children would miss school to queue for aid it is always the girl child who does the queuing because normally they have responsibility for cooking and general household duties and that's a quote quote from some research by adolescent girls from in Zimbabwe So let's imagine what would happen if we actually ask kids to help decide on the backdrop to the rest of their lives. We doubt that many would choose contexts of unmanageable extreme weather or mass extinctions. The youth climate movement has become a powerful voice for climate justice. And this is inextricably linked to children's rights, including their rights to participate meaningfully in decisions that will affect them. So why doesn't the IPCC have have so much to say on the children as agents of change? three reasons and areas for action. Researchers have to take some of the blame. The IPCC doesn't do research. They summarise the findings of other scientific evidence. Are we researching and publishing enough reports focusing on children from impacts to adaptation with a child-centred lens? Apparently not. Or is, is is there not enough priority given to child-centred climate action? This is the second uh, possibility. A 2021 UNICEF discussion paper showed that although 72% of national climate plans include child-sensitive words, only 12% mentioned that the process of developing them actually involved children. We need more recognition that children are a key stakeholder, if not the key stakeholder in climate action. This is their futures we're talking about. Doing Doing so means breaking down the barriers to participation that children and young people themselves identify both their own capacities and the enabling environment to listen and take on board their views. These decisions are about the next 60 plus years of their lives. They have a right to participate in how we prevent climate change, how we adapt and how we tackle the losses that we can't adapt to. So finally, the IPCC process itself can wake up to the needs and voices of children. The 3,675, wow, pages of the new report is daunting to experts but are the cornerstone of evidence-based, frame, evidence-based decision-making. The IPCC should consider how they might involve children in the framing and dissemination of reports. Specifically, we call on national governments that direct the IPCC to recognise the importance of children and future generations by commissioning an IPCC special report on children and climate change. This can synthesize not only the evidence of impacts on children, but also evidence of their agency to understand and take action on climate change. Very important. Child rights, children underestimated, as we've seen so many times from Greta, but uh, many, many others. I wrote a book back in the 90s about the, the, the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child in Latin America and what an amazing impact it had galvanizing children's movements, children's activism across the region. We need to apply that kind of thinking to climate change, which is a more positive note than I thought I was going to end up on. Um, And I hope you have a decent weekend and let's hope the news next week is better than it has been for the last couple of weeks. Bye, everybody. Talk soon.